The Perfect Ten. With Steve Allen, voice of the NRL and six-time radio award winner. Welcome to another edition of The Perfect Ten, brought to you by Robson Simmel Projects, celebrating their 60th anniversary. And at the end of this episode, we'll share some information about Robson Civil Projects. They want you, no matter where you are now, Robson Civil, they need staff right across New South Wales. So we'll tell you more at the end of the episode. I'm still kind of pinching myself that Kerry Pothast is joining us, one of my heroes from Sydney 2000. One of the unforgettable moments, along with Kathy Freeman in the 400 metres. And I feel like this episode is a real blueprint for a lot of young athletes on their way through. After winning bronze in Atlanta in the beach volleyball, the first time it was held, by the way, Kerry and her partner Natalie Cook changed their mindset totally in the countdown to Sydney 2000. On the famous sands at Bondi Beach, they face a Brazilian team who were virtually unbeatable, but they find a way, and they fight back in the match time and time again. Also in this episode, Kerry talks about her indoor career. She also elaborates on inspiring the nation all over again on SAS Australia, and also meeting the dream team, Luke Longley and the Chicago Bulls in the 1990s. Right now, though, let's relive some of those magical moments from Sydney 2000. Our home Olympic Games, the first time since 1956. Kerry Pothast and Natalie Cook winning gold. Potter's power serve reaching 85 kilometres an hour. The locals again shot clear in the second before Brazil rallied to lead 7-3. Pushed by a fanatical hometown crowd, the Aussies came back yet again. Potter's and Cook getting to 11-10. Carey with gold medal points. Overcome, 35-year-old Potas climbed the stands in search of a family. I just can't believe it. It hasn't sunk in yet. I'm just so happy. And all my family, my friends, and everyone special to me is here today. I couldn't believe it, and I had to have my cry. The pair that split up for two years after Atlanta and then reunited as the dream machine has fulfilled every beach volleyballer's ambition. So there we go, and how amazing is it to hear that audio again after all these years? Kerry Pothast, OAM, winning gold on the sands of Bondi Beach. A businesswoman, motivational speaker, a mum, which is probably, well, definitely the most important of the entire lot. Kerry Pothast, OAM, welcome to The Perfect Ten. Well, that is a lovely introduction. Thank you very much. (laughs) So nice to talk to you again and uh, really love catching up recently at the coaching conference on the New South Wales Central Coast. How do you enjoy that experience? Oh, look, that was so much fun. I do so much um, speaking and have done for years, but I always love speaking to a sporting audience because they really get obviously, um, you know, the journey that I've been on. But to be able to then also help the coaches um, and provide some uh, some strategies, some tactics and just some stories that they can then convey to their athletes, you know, that's, that's what I'm about. That's what I love to do the most. What are some of your key messages when you talk to coaches? It's a hard one because over the years I've covered so many different things because I've pretty much had – well, almost everything happened to me in in a, in a sense, you know, all the things that I've had to bounce back from, you know, the the losses, the injuries, 
you know, relationship breakups, um, sporting changes within my sporting team, all sorts of things. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think there are, I guess, three things that I, I think are really, really important when you want to create success in your life. And they are passion. You've got to love what you do. You've got to just, you know, absolutely want to get up out of bed in the morning, no matter how sore, how tired, how how bad you feel. You just got to want to do what you're doing. Um, preparation, you've got to do all the hard work. There's no um, skirting around, you know, all the, the hours that you need to spend doing what you're, you know, you're trying to be successful at. And then the last one is belief. And for, for Natalie Cook and I, when we, you know, after we won our bronze in Atlanta and, and you know, we had the four years leading into the Sydney in our home games, we knew that that was one of the biggest parts of our games. Well, in fact, our coaches knew that that was the biggest part of the game because it's funny when you don't have the belief, you don't really realise you don't have it, if you know what I mean. So our coaches worked very hard together to help us develop the belief. So passion, preparation and belief. Yeah, I tell you, you're off to a flying start and it was remiss of me. Uh, you deserve a standing ovation on the uh, perfect 10. So the sound of one hand clapping there. <laughs> hey, So you, you're exposed to volleyball as a teenager. We'll discuss that. but. I want to ask you a question. When's the first time you saw the Olympics on TV and how did that make you feel? And I'll tell you my story very quickly. So I'm at Palm Beach Primary School on the Gold Coast, 1976, grade two. Now we stopped to watch Stephen Holland, OAM, on black and white TV. The original Superfish, he broke 12 world records, his first as a 15-year-old, trained by Laurie Lawrence. He was a world champion at the time but came... Third in the race behind two Americans. Now, it's actually the first time ever. I think I'm seven years old. The first time that I actually sensed disappointment among the people that were watching this sporting event. The teachers and the people watching were so invested in the outcome of that race at the Olympics that I could sense disappointment even at that young age. How about for you? Is it vivid, your memory of seeing the Olympics for the first time? Well... It is, but not in the way that you've described it, because I absolutely don't remember anything before I started playing sport and, you know, before I was on my own journey to the Olympics. Because when I played indoor volleyball, Olympics wasn't even on the radar because Australian, the indoor women's team, we ranked about 25th in the world and they only take the top 12 teams into the Olympics. So, you know, it was pretty much an impossibility for our, our national team at the time to ever make the Olympics. But we played in a lot of international events. We travelled around the world and I had a great time for 10 years representing Australia. So the Olympics wasn't on my radar. I didn't even really, I don't even remember watching it. Didn't didn't do anything for me. But the moment that I do remember going into my first Olympics was in 1996 after I'd made the Olympics, obviously, and I was there with the, the Olympic squad and we were we were waiting to go into the Olympic opening ceremony stadium and we were one of the first countries going out there. Well, we're A, so, but we were, <laughs> was, there was a lot of countries starting with A. So it was, we weren't one of the first, but I tell you what, the moment we had to walk up this ramp up into the stadium. So we walked up the ramp, hit the top and then walked down into the stadium. And I will never, ever forget that feeling. And it hit me like, I don't know, it hit me like a, a thunderstorm like I got to the top of the stadium and the noise just hit us in the face and my face was actually on national tv um, <laughs> which I found out later on and I just mouthed the four-letter word starting yeah. with uh, f yeah yeah <laughs> and I kind of I was 
so like shocked by this noise and the sight of walking into this stadium filled with a hundred thousand people screaming at us in um in Atlanta and in the United States that that was my my biggest memory of the Olympics and my first biggest memory I guess yeah, yeah. that was pretty amazing. Oh, I want to find out. I mean, this is a great story. How you first exposed to volleyball and really you're just making up the numbers for your brother. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I was, um, I, I played a variety of sports. I didn't really have my sights set on becoming a sports person at all, um, even into high school. So I was middle of high school, um, about 15, and my brother had started playing social volleyball in a, a community centre in Adelaide. And one night he needed a sixth person just to fill in because you have to have everybody on the court when the whistle blows, they have to be inside the lines. And he said, can you just come and fill in? You don't have to play. Just kind of step out of the way and we'll play the point. But we just need you to be there. there you and I did that. And, you know, that night I kind of tried to join in a couple of times and, you know, I really enjoyed it. And he looked at me and went, well, gosh, you're six foot tall. You, you seem to be reasonably coordinated. Why don't you come and, you know, play in our club team? And the minute I walked into the club team, I realised I was home because it was like my tribe. It was like oh my gosh, I, I've always needed to find this place because up until that moment, being so tall, I was so much taller than all of my friends. I was really self-conscious, um, you know, as a young girl and I have a funny last name. I got teased a lot and I'm kind of sensitive as well at the end of the day. So, you know, when I walked in and everyone was tall and they all just went, wow, like we'll teach how to play, you know, hang around. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm wanted and needed and, and everyone wants me because I'm tall, which is great. So it gave me um, something to strive towards and it became the biggest passion of my life and I'm still so involved in the sport. Yeah, I'd like to ask you more about growing up in Adelaide and your family and I assume these days you're probably on a pathway towards playing AFLW with your height, but with volleyball, is it almost the ultimate team game? You tick every single box in terms of skill level to be able to play that sport. How do you feel it rates as a team sport? Well, that's interesting. I've never really thought of it like that because I, I would hate to put down any other sport. <laughs> but um, I don't. Yeah, I look. I think so. It's very different to any other sport. Obviously, team-wise, you've got six people on the court who have to work like a well-oiled machine, and you've got another six maximum sitting on the bench, just egging you know each other on and wanting to get on the court. But you're rebounding the ball off your arms. You're rebounding it. Um, out of your fingers, which has, which is a learned skill. We we don't learn to do those sorts of things when we're young. We we learn to catch and throw. We learn to uh, swim. We learn to, you know, we'll shoot basketball, you know, in a hoop in the backyard or down at the the local park. But we don't actually learn to play volleyball in this country like something that's part of our 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 youth. So in that sense, it's highly skillful and you do need to start early if you want to crack on in life and, and get it to the top. So, you know, to have found it and then been able to have been taught by some great coaches, I'm really fortunate, I reckon. I think I probably would have gone on and played netball maybe if I'd got picked up, you know, by some scouts or something like that because of my height and my, you know, hand-eye coordination is pretty good. So, but I, I'm pretty glad I got volleyball because... It is such a unique sport and, you know, and it's a small sport as well. So I, I pretty much know everyone, know what's going on. And, you know, at a world level now, I'm actually commentating the, the world championships next week um, from home. 
And so I know what's going on around the world still. So it's pretty, yeah, It's it's been an amazing ride. And I, I just love it. Yeah. The other skills I'd put in is power, of course, with the serve, which is which was your specialty, of course. Finesse, the aerial jumping ability. Um, totally, yeah. Yeah, so there's just so many areas. And like you said, like a well-oiled machine, the great teams. And this is a sport, if you're calling the World Championships, is it dominated by European countries, but also South America, where I believe it's number two in Brazil behind football in terms of popularity? Yeah, it definitely is number two. They say that, that football in Brazil is a religion. So volleyball is the number one sport, and that includes beach volleyball, indoor and beach. They're both, you know, Brazil are incredible at both both parts of the sport. Um, these days, so I'm, I'm, going, I'm still involved with both sports, but I'm going to be calling the beach volleyball. And the interesting thing is in the last oh, probably 12 to 18 months, and we haven't had a lot of tournaments, but in, in that time we've had 14 different nations on the podium. So it really is starting to spread beach volleyball in terms of the depth of the, you know, how good they are in, in various different countries. It started off just being the US and Brazil all the time on the podium and, and maybe a, an extra team here and there. And that's, you know, when I was involved and we were always playing Brazil and the Americans in the finals. But um, now it's, you know, a lot of European teams, absolutely, but still a Brazil and America are still, you know, you'd find at least one or two you know, in the finals. And now you're seeing Germany, you're seeing Switzerland, you know, some small landlocked countries as well, uh, being at the top of the world in um, beach volleyball. Hey, where are the world championships that you're commentating on? They're in Rome, in Italy. Yeah, beautiful. Doesn't get much better. Mm. Hey, uh, you mentioned about being six foot tall and, you know, strange last name, Pothast, and I know you had (laughs) nicknames. Uh, Are you scarred slightly from that period? I wouldn't say scarred in a bad way. I guess it kind of um, it kind of encouraged me to to be stronger. It you know I, I became more resilient because of it. I got teased a lot for being tall. Um, uh, the name, you know, you take the H and the T off, and there's an ass in the middle, and and that can create a fair few decent nicknames. And my mum was a teacher at school too, so that and they had a nickname for her. And so, you know, the teasing and, and because I was sensitive, it, it obviously got to me and that's when the kids, you know, they like to then do more of it. Um, but I guess, yeah, it. I don't know if it scarred me, but it's definitely um, made me stronger in a sense, yeah. Yeah, yeah, great answer. So, it, I mean, it does shape and define who you become. Like you said, it made you a stronger person. And you talk about that all the time, particularly on social media, which I, I really love. The other thing I saw on social media, and it almost brought a tear to my eye, I saw you playing the piano with your mum. So is that something that started for you at a young age as well? Um, well, my mum was a music teacher. So we had a piano in the house all the time. I taught myself a little bit. I didn't ever have lessons. I'm not a great piano player, but I kind of I learned how to play um, my sister's really good. My sister was more the musical one and I went, you know, the, the full-on sporting route. But, um, yeah, when mum, mum, before mum passed away and she was in the aged care home and they had a piano there and she absolutely loved it when we, we played some music. And, I, you know, I mean, I'd play chopsticks and all sorts of bits <laughs> and pieces, but enough to kind of to make her, you know, just remember her musical days. And they say that with, eight, you know, with older people that um, music can really take them back and, you know, help stimulate their memory and things like that. So, yeah, that was a lovely moment. Yeah. How many in the Pothouse family? 
just my brother and sister. So older brother and older sister. And they both excelled in sport. My brother's a great surfer. He played volleyball, obviously, in the state team. And my sister was a windsurfer, believe it or not. She started, she was one of the first life female lifesavers in South Australia. So she she paved the way for lifesaving uh, for women way, way back. And then she got into sailing and windsurfing and and also netball and still is a netball coach. So we all love sport. We're all pretty active. Yeah, fantastic. So you mentioned about the indoor volleyball team. Did we have, and you make your Australian debut in 1982. Did we have legends in volleyball in Australia back then? And who deserves credit? Um, we had legends, but no one would have known about them other than the volleyball players. Um, and there were a few legends in my state. I was lucky to be under the coaching of a lady called Sue Dancy, who she was the setter for the national team for a little while. And um, we also had quite a few national team players in our state as well. So I had a great lot of older players around me. Um, and I, I do like distinctly remember it was kind of my coming of age. We were playing a just a, a practice game against a touring international team. I can't even remember what country they're from, probably an Asian team because they'd come more often than, than any other countries. But And I was put on for one of my idols, a lady by the name of Ingrid Ranver, and she was an, an outside hitter, you know, the power player. And I was put on for Ingrid and I stayed on. <laughs> almost for the rest of the game, I think. And that was kind of the moment I realised and, and perhaps when I cemented my place in the team, in the, in the first six of the team. Um, and then from that moment on, I was pretty much a main player and uh, became really good friends with my setter. So often the big hitters and the setters form a relationship because the setter is always feeding you the ball and you're the one that they, they look for when they need to, you know, the go-to plays. So, um, yeah, her name was Wanda Seeper and she ended up being my first beach volleyball partner. So, you know, friendships for life and it's just, yeah, it's just such a bonding sport. When you were here on the Central Coast, I never realised how many times you were injured and really, <laughs> uh, I mean, it's, it's amazing the amount of times you had to come back. Can you tell our listeners uh, about your surgeries and really, I mean, that's the pivotal moment for you to become a beach volleyball player? Yeah, well, look, I didn't actually have any major injuries until, you know, my 10th year of representing Australia. And I'd been overseas. I'd play volleyball in Italy for a season. And I was, you know, it's the top of my game. I was 27 and I, everything was going great. And I came back from Italy and we had a national championships in Melbourne. And um, we it was a week-long nationals and we played a lot every day and because I was the big hitter, the you know, the person who would finish the ball off, I got set a lot. So I was jumping, jumping, jumping and I'm getting pretty tired by the end of the week and we're in the final uh, for gold and I hit this ball on the right-hand side of the court and it got blocked as, you know, you don't always hit winners. It got blocked. It was coming back on my side. I decided that I'd grab it myself and as I landed, I was twisting and unfortunately the surface was quite sticky and there'd been a lot of injuries that week. And um, I landed, my foot kind of just stayed facing where I landed, but my body kind of twisted with full force. So I blew out my knee, um, I ruptured my cruciate ligament, I ruptured my medial ligament, and I wrecked meniscus and cartilage. So I did pretty much the worst thing you could possibly do. Um, I was taken to hospital immediately. They put me in a cast that day and, you know, that night, um, actually fainted in the cast. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was standing up near the phone box calling my boyfriend back at home and I fainted into the bushes and so I scratched all my face and everything and 
I get on the plane the next day and everyone's thinking that I'd been in a car accident because <laughs> I was so cut up. Um, but that was from feigning with the cast on. But yeah, then I get back to Adelaide and they tell me that I've got three surgeries or at least two surgeries ahead of me. Um, and I knew that that was going to be a big road to come back. So um, yeah, that was the catalyst to then after a year realizing that, you know, the hard floorboards, which is going to be too much for the injury that I'd sustained. So I tried the sand and um, realized that it was going to be a lot better for my knee. And that was the beginning of another 10 years of the green and gold. Yeah. In your motivational talk, you, I mean, you've got a prop and it's a beach volleyball. And was it your boyfriend at the time he gave that to you when you were in hospital? Yeah, yeah. So it was actually an indoor volleyball. It was a, a brand new white one. These days they're very colourful, which uh, doesn't really matter, but it, the white one just made it stand out even more. And when he gave it to me, I was a little bit later when I realised that, I, you know, I was getting quite depressed and, you know, things weren't going that great. I've had two surgeries at this point and my leg had whittled away. I'd lost about 10 kilos and I was still sitting on the couch every day because I couldn't walk. And he, he gave me this ball and he, he said, carry on every panel of that ball, I want you to write a goal and then put a date on that goal and then bit by bit use that as um, a guide to get back to playing for Australia again. And it was pretty cool. It was a, a great idea at the time. It gave me something to focus on. And the fact that it was written on what I wanted to do as well was really, really important because I was seeing the volleyball every day. So it was in my mind. And I think these days, well, even those days, life is just so busy. And unless you're reminded of the things that you need to do each day sometimes, just the little things to get to where you want to go, um, you know, the goal can just slip away and it's next year or it's next week or it's next month or, you know, it just takes a lot longer. And I knew that I wanted to get back as quickly as I could and I gave myself a year and I put all the, the steps on that ball and the one thing on that ball, there was a little panel left over when I was filling it out and that's where I wrote beach volleyball because I actually thought that beach volleyball would come after I'd got back to playing indoor again. And I didn't know at the time how things were going to pan out. And that's sometimes the point too. Like, you know, sometimes you think you know the pathway, but it ends up you zigzag all over the place or you end up somewhere new, and which is great. But as long as you've got something to work towards, I think that's the point. And writing it down, putting a date on it. And if you can put it on something three-dimensional, then even better because people would come to my house and they'd look at the ball and they'd pick it up and they'd go, oh, wow, what's this? And we'd talk about it and they'd give me their two cents worth and um, they'd keep me accountable. And it was in front of me every single day. Yeah. You said about your first beach volleyball partner, but tell me about when you first met Natalie Cook for the first time. Well, I met her across the net. She was playing with somebody else. She was playing with Anita Palm and I was playing with my second beach volleyball partner then, Annette Huygenstolen, and we'd already um, started representing Australia and we were kind of climbing up the ranks in the, the world tour. And we'd, we were playing okay together, but we were the number three Australian team and we knew that they were only taking two teams to the Olympics for the first time in 1996 and we were two years out from that. And when I saw Nat and I and I kind of started to weigh up my options of how was I going to get to the Olympics because now the Olympics was in sight, I kind of had this sideways discussion with Nat and said, what do you think? You know, should we play together? And she was very, very young at the time. She's only 19 and she was a little bit too scared to make any moves and switch partners because Anita had 
had had kind of got her ready for the tour and, and Anita was my age so we were 10 years older than Nat so Anita was looking after her and um and so Nat was too scared to do anything but the next minute we found out that Anita was talking to somebody else I think Anita had probably sensed that something was going on so Anita teamed up with uh, a new partner and that left Natalie free and that was it we just we got together and uh, from that moment on we were the number one team in Australia and um, yeah we made it to Atlanta. Uh, I tell you this could be some kind of drama series that uh, <laughs> yeah. sh- should be on TV. Uh, what were Nat's great attributes? What did you love about her as a player? Oh look she's just such a committed person whenever she she gets something in sight she commits absolutely everything to it she had grit and determination she had the youth and she had the legs that I I mean I'd had four surgeries by that stage so you know she had had the uh, the energy and she just had some spunk like she just had something a little bit different and I knew that she still had a lot of improvement in her as well it was a new sport for me but I was already at probably close to my my best in terms of my skills I still had to learn the game but Natalie's skills were still developing she was getting better and stronger and she was also um, my height or just a couple of centimeters shorter so the height um, obviously helped as well we knew we needed that on the world tour you guys win a bronze medal first tell us about that experience and what it meant to win your first ever Olympic medal in Atlanta oh well it was pretty special the first Olympics for beach volleyball ever and our Olympic medal was the first one given out. So Natalie and I will always have that in our minds that we were the first ever in, in the sports history to receive an Olympic medal. But we, yeah, we had a, a pretty cool journey to that point. I mean, we were ranked number six, I, I think, going into Atlanta. So we knew we had a chance of of winning a medal, but that was where our, our mind was that was the limit to our thinking at the time winning a medal we we didn't even contemplate that we could you know take out the number one spot but we actually beat the best american team who was at the time on paper you know gold or silver medalists the brazilians were pretty good too so um you know we beat them in the quarter final and that was massive for us it was almost like our gold medal match and we beat them 15 13 different scoring system but obviously a really tight score and so that was massive for us and we made our semi-final and, and at that point we're like, well, now we've got a chance of getting a medal. We've got a three out of four chance of getting a medal, you know, and we get matched up in the semi-final against the second-ranked Brazilian team, which we'd beaten before, not many times, but enough to know that we could have beaten them in that semi. But unfortunately, we were so freaked out, we, we just had it in our mind the whole time, you know, don't lose, don't lose, don't lose. This is our big chance. Oh, don't lose this, don't lose this, because if we lose, we could come fourth, um, which is, you know, an athlete's nightmare to just miss out on a medal. <laughs> and so by the time we stepped on the court, we were so anxious and so scared. We didn't just lose. We got absolutely smashed by this Brazilian team. And we left the court with our tail between our legs. And, um, yeah, we had to kind of scrape it together that night to kind of just even talk about the next day. And we managed to get inspired. Kieran Perkins won a gold that night in the pool. That really inspired Natalie. And um, I talked to some of the hockey players who had actually finished fourth in the previous Olympics, the guys. And, you know, just the look in the guy's eye when he said to me, like, it's the worst ever feeling to come forth, that that kind of spurred me on a bit. I didn't want to feel the same way again. Um, and we went out the next day and we beat the, the second-ranked American team for the bronze. It almost sounds like if you had 
I mean, you talk a lot about mindset in your motivational speaking. If you had the right mindset in Atlanta, it could have been gold there and then back-to-back in Sydney. Well, it could have, but I don't think that that's the way life goes. You kind of have to have those moments where things are in your control or in your grasp and then you you lose them or you you fail to reach a goal and that just gives you the the learnings that you need then to go forth and and get the one that you're probably destined for which is what how it felt for us so coming off the back of Atlanta I mean obviously winning a a bronze is pretty special because you lose the semi and then you win your last game and you're standing on the podium. So bronze medalists are often happier in our sport than the silver medalists Yeah, because yeah. you've come off with a win, right? So coming off the back of Atlanta, we, we'd learnt so much and we knew that the missing piece was not necessarily just going to be physical or strategic, which we still worked on all the time. It was really going to be about the mental side of the game. So um, within a couple of years, we we got a, a success coach on board. Natalie met him. We had a little time apart, Natalie and I, um, because we got a little bit cocky about having won a medal and we thought we were great and we started to blame each other and then we looked around for different options and I I decided I wanted to play with somebody else to give it a go and that worked well on the court but off the court was really difficult we just didn't gel at all personality wise so Natalie and I got back together and then when I got back together with her she had met our success coach already Um, his name is Kirik Ashley and she brought him on board and he made the difference for the last year and a half leading into the games really helping us with that belief yeah wow what an answer Uh, what kind of things did he implement to change your game well first of all he realized in Natalie that she needed to stop worrying about what people thought um, and become more uh, less self-conscious and and just more courageous and and just be who she was Um, And that was what he started working on with her and her partner that when we were split up in that short time. And then when I came back together with her, um, he then saw that he really needed to work on our teamwork and we put together a plan. You know, we, we went away with our volleyball coach and our conditioning coach and we put together a plan that we ended up calling gold medal excellence. And that was like our business plan. And in that, it included uh, our purpose. You know, we had to really dig into why we wanted to win a gold medal, what it was going to mean to us, and then um, our code of conduct. So what we, what rules were we going to put around ourselves as individuals and as a team, um, around our communication and the way we related to each other, the respect that we had for each other, and those rules would get us to where we wanted to go. And then there was a a component that we called our winning way. And that was all about the things we had to do to beat every team in the world, because we kind of knew the pathway would lead to playing the Brazilian number one team in the world in the final, because we kind of knew what seeding we were going to get. So by making sure that we could beat them, in fact, that would then help us beat everybody else. So we had certain components around the, the, the game, that we knew we had to be good enough at to beat everyone in the world. And then the last component of that plan was all around who we were. So who did we have to be? You know, what type of people, what characteristics did we then need to be the best in the world at our sport? And so we looked around us and looked at other sports people that were the top of their lev- their game, but also business people, and just went, what characteristics do these people have that make them the best at what they're doing? And we pulled out all those and we kind of put those characteristics that we thought that suited us 
and that we needed and we put them in the plan and then we laminated that plan it was set in olympic rings um so again it was visual and colorful we laminated it and we signed it like a contract we called it our gold medal excellence plan because what we knew we had to do to get the gold medal we had to you live our lives as if we were gold medalists in the lead up. So we had to act like gold medalists, train like gold medalists, think like gold medalists. So by the time the opportunity came along, we already felt comfortable in that environment. Yeah, I tell you, this is the best story I've ever heard. And uh, did I just see your dog go off in the background? Oh, yeah, I have a COVID puppy, you know, when you get (laughs) bored at home and you need something. So we got a little puppy and she's amazing. But, yeah, it's like having another child. Yes, yes. So... Obviously, you play a team that had an unbelievable record in the final, but I want to know about the senses. So you mentioned about walking up the ramp in Atlanta, and you know, that's so powerful. And then what are your senses like in Sydney? What is different to you from the outset? Well, like, why is Sydney different? Well, the thing was that by the time we got to Sydney, we were comfortable with it being different. And this is the most important part. We learned how to be uncomfortable because no one knew what it was going to be like playing in Sydney. No athlete could have had any experience of a home games because it hadn't been, you know, they hadn't played in 56, for instance, or they hadn't competed back then in Melbourne. So that they just we just didn't know what it was going to be like playing at home. Um, so that, for one, it was the biggest difference. And having your family and your friends so close, knowing that they're all in the, the stands and everyone's just cheering for you, like in Bondi, 10,000 people cheering for you was incredibly loud. But when you lost a point or made a mistake, they all felt sorry for you. So that, oh, <laughs> it's just as loud. So it's the emotional roller coaster that was really, really different. Um, and that really hits you in the heart and and we actually nearly lost our first match because of that because we we felt so connected and responsible to the crowd that we felt like we were letting them down when we were losing points so we had to deal with that as as the games went on and we we did a couple of so we talked to a sports psych we talked to some other athletes who perhaps were used to coming home to a home crowd like the tennis players were the only sport really we could think would come home to a, a home crowd so we actually went into the village we hooked up a meeting with them and we sat down with Leighton Hewitt, a few of the other tennis players, and just talked to them about what it was like coming home, Pat Rafter, you know, and playing in front of a home crowd. And they gave us kind of some tips and tricks. And uh, But I do remember Pat because Pat left me with something that I did take on and and kind of it grew on me as as the games progressed. And by the time we got to the final, Pat said to me, it's almost like you have to build a little cocoon of silence around yourself. You know, the crowd is there and you kind of feel that energy, but you can't focus on it. You, you can't let your focus go out into the crowd. So for me, the way I, I dealt with that, it was almost like, remember in Get Smart, you know, they would have the cone of silence. <laughs> I love the cone of silence. And that was kind of like the cone of silence. I hadn't really named it. I hadn't thought of it like that, but it, I, I started to be able to just kind of sense the crowd, hear the crowd but not be, um, not really tune into them. And I was just tuned into Natalie. I really came together with Natalie and everything was just on our side of the court. And I was also connected to what was happening on the other side of the court. I didn't know where my family was. I didn't know where the coaches were because we're not allowed coaches on the court. So they're, they're in, you know, somewhere in the crowd. I didn't know where anyone was sitting because I was so focused on what was happening in the court. So when I watched that, the video of the last point landing out, I, I served a big serve 
Um, they weren't able to control. It was going over on our side. I chased it to the sideline. And as that ball was landing out, you know, Natalie was screaming towards me as in, saying, you know, yelling out, leave it or it's out or something because she knew it was going out. But I, I kind of just instinctually went to it anyway. I let it drop. And at that moment that it dropped, I dropped to the ground and it was like that cone of silence that shattered all around me. And I could hear literally everybody screaming and Natalie was on top of me and it, it was just like my senses just came alive. And I was almost, I stayed on the ground for a bit and she's kind of saying, get up, get up, you know, celebrate with the crowd. And I was almost too scared to look up because I knew everyone was looking at me and I still have this sense of being, you know, I'm not really comfortable with being the centre of attention, <laughs> to believe, believe it or not, but I had, to, I had to become comfortable with it. So the moment that the game was finished, I really didn't, I wasn't comfortable there for, for you know, a few minutes until I got up and you know, and realise what we had achieved. And, you know, then then I relished in it and absolutely loved it every moment. Yeah, yeah. And I know you've spoken about it a lot before, but uh, so the team you beat, were was their record 17-1 and one against you guys? Yeah. Yes, it was 17 matches we'd played in the lead-up apparently had been counted, but um, one has, is all we had beaten them. And that was three months leading it, three months before the Olympics we'd beaten them. And then the next weekend at the very next event in another country, they beat us back, right back. So <laughs> we just had that one win to kind of give us the last piece of belief, I guess. And, you know, but the belief for us was not through the experience of beating them. It was through everything that we'd done in the lead up, all the work that we'd done, the, the crazy things, the glass walking, the fire walking, the blindfolded rock climbing as a team, you know, all the things to put us out of our comfort zone. So by the time we were in uncomfortable situations, it was okay. You know, it, we didn't falter. We didn't, we didn't get scared. We just took it on and the Brazilians were leading the whole entire, like we played the best of three sets. We won in the first two sets. They were leading both sets by a, a big uh, point lead, four or five points. So we just had to kind of keep digging our heels in. And it was almost like there was a moment where the Brazilians, you know, they, they're winning, they're winning, they're celebrating, they're feeling good. You know, they know that they're probably going to win. They're thinking that they know they're probably going to win because they're the best team, you know, on paper and they've beaten us so many times. But you know, then these Australian girls just kept on coming back all the time. And, and you could almost see on their faces that at one point it was like, when are these girls going to give up and let us win? And we didn't. And we just kept coming back, coming back. And we just picked them at the post, you know, the one point and two points in each set over the top of them. And, and the set was done. And they, I think they, they were in a little bit of shock for a while. They just didn't really know what happened. Whereas we just never let it go. We just went, no, this is what we've been working towards this is what our mindset has been telling us that this is we believe we can do this and we're just going to keep going we're not going to stop we're not going to just believe that, that they're the better, better team this is our day and the funny thing is a couple of days after that we were being interviewed by somebody and the journo said did you sleep much the night before the final and natalie said no i hardly slept at all and i looked at her and said oh my god i didn't either but we were both trying to stay quiet so the other one would get some sleep but we were so excited you know we weren't worried we were excited this time and um the journal asked Nat and said well what were you thinking about all night and she said I was practicing my victory speech and I just gasped and looked at her and said so was I <laughs> 
So we were both lying there thinking about what we were going to do after we'd won the gold medal. And to me, that just showed that we were in a place of absolute belief. There was nothing that was going to rock our belief that day. For our listeners who haven't seen volleyball, what speed do you serve at? Uh, I'm sure you've been clocked on the radar gun. Yeah, I was the fastest server in Atlanta, uh, the first Olympics at I think it was 84 maybe or 82 kilometres an hour. And then I upped it by Sydney, I think it was 80, well, it was 85 or 87, one or the other, I can't remember now. But I was definitely the fastest server of my time back then and that was most definitely one of our weapons. And I served an ace in the second to last point and then I, then I kind of I thought I'm not going to back off the pressure I'm just I served an ace down the line like on the line for a winner and then I thought no I'm going to just reduce my risk a little bit and I'm going to go through the middle of the court um, but with the same pace and so it's that thought and it's that confidence at that point at a match point for a gold medal to serve just as hard but with a little bit less risk those decision making things that can only happen when you have that belief and I was just so calm in making that decision and that's why I was able to to execute it and, um, yeah, gave us the last point. <laughs> when you would watch you uh, in slow-mo, I'd imagine there's a lot of sports science around the perfect serve these days, but what about back then? Was there any kind of technology or sports science involved in in you being so superior? Look, I think, no, I don't, not as much. It was just starting. We were starting to video things and um, these days there is, I guess, a lot more sports science around it, but I think the most important thing is that when you're a young athlete that you get taught the correct skill. And I was really lucky again because I had great coaches that I got taught the correct skill or I picked it up through watching the good players around me rather than picking up the skill of somebody who who didn't have a great um, skill. But you can go you can go to a certain level with a with an awkward skill, but at some point the perfect skill add in the strength and the determination then then that becomes, you know, the winning the winning player. And so I was lucky I had the skill taught to me by the coaches and then added the strength and, and the experience of playing 10 years for the national team as well, hitting the ball hard all the time. Um, and I had the, I had, um, I have a very long frame, but I have good long levers and I was just able to, to use my whole body in the serve rather than just my shoulder. So your life changes when you win in Sydney 2000. And you said a moment ago about how you weren't all that comfortable with so much attention, and I'm sure you get stopped every single day of the week just with pure adulation for what you've achieved. How does that sit with you now? Well, it doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Thank goodness. I'm not sure if I, I could handle that. Um, well, what about after and, SAS Australia? I'm sure you're, oh, I'm sure you're stopped everywhere you go. Well, I was actually after SAS, you know, walking down at Manly Beach in Sydney on the northern beaches, you know, a lot of people had watched the the show last year and it was all the women were just saying, oh, you were great, oh, you're so inspiring, you know, da-da-da-da, and that was really, really special. I really, really loved that and I remember after the Sydney Games, um, obviously we were on, on everything, front pages and everywhere and and I didn't really notice it as much that, you know, my boyfriend would walk behind me, um, not because, you know, he'd let me walk in front <laughs> for that reason, but he did it on purpose to just watch as people recognise who I was and laugh because I didn't even know these people were just like looking at me, whispering, going, oh, there's the beach volleyballer or, or whatever. But it's pretty hard to be inconspicuous when you're six foot tall and, and you know, blonde hair and 
yeah so I at first it was it was cool but what I think Natalie and I did really well was we used our our short bit of fame and we we used that in the sport and really lifted the sport I mean at the same time we were helping our own careers we were speaking we started speaking we we ran corporate beach volleyball days we were ambassadors for some great products and um, some great companies and we put our faces on things and uh, we kept on playing as well and we we really um, took advantage of the opportunities I guess and to a point where um, it it became a career. I mean, I dropped my 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 full time work in 1994. By the time it was 95, I I was full time athlete, and I haven't had a nine to five job since then. So Natalie and I were both able to create you know 20 years of work out of it, and, and I'm still speaking, and I'm still you know getting booked and and sharing my stories. And but that's taken time to develop as well. At first, it was because of what we'd done, and and I think now I get a lot of work because I'm able to share those stories and and really kind of help other people be successful as well. Oh, I tell you, you're the best in the business. Uh, I want to ask more oh. about <laughs> I want to ask more about SAS Australia, but. You had a third Olympics campaign in Athens, and what are your memories of those games? Athens, I don't speak about much other than the lessons I learned from Athens because I I didn't play with Natalie. I'd retired in 2002, and then I just played on the national tour. I played with a young partner, and we won every event (laughs) against Natalie and her (laughs) new partner. And so my younger partner, Summer Lokovic, said to me, well, do you want to try and get to the Olympics? We've got literally about... 10 months or something to to try and qualify and I, I I took a while to decide because I thought well, what happens if I don't make it how am I going to feel from being a gold medalist to not even making it you know having a go and failing am I going to be able to handle that you know what's happening in my life at the time like I, I just actually split up with a partner who I thought we were going to start a family with so I had the time and my yeah my initial thoughts were well give it a crack and see what happens. I did a, a little pros and cons list and, and they were, there were more pros than there were cons. So we gave it a crack and we, it, it took us right up until the last tournament, which was only a few weeks before the Games, to actually qualify. And so I think I, I got a lot more grey hairs through that period. It was really <laughs> stressful, really, really stressful for both of us and our coach at the time, Paul Smith. And um, But we made it. And so getting being able to give her the opportunity of getting to her first and only Olympics was fantastic. So I love the fact that she got to the Games. And then when we got to the Games, we were I was, you know, on my last legs. I'd say I was 39. I'd had five surgeries, I think, by that stage. Um, my knee was blowing up. I was having to just really manage it, my bad one. And, um, yeah, I, I, we were playing well. We won against Greece in their, you know, in front of their home crowd, which was fantastic. And she, one of the Greece players is, is one of my good friends who I'm go- hopefully going to see in a couple of months when I go overseas. And uh, then we ended up having to play against Natalie and her partner <laughs> in, a, in, the, in the single elimination. And they, they, took, they got the better of us on the day uh, by far. They beat us quite convincingly. So that was the end of my Olympics being beaten by my gold medal partner and I was pretty upset for a while so I wouldn't say it was my favorite Olympics but I then did get into 
the Olympic spirit and went and watched Australia in, in a numerous different sports. So I w- went and watched the hockey boys win their gold and that was just, that was probably my highlight. Yeah, we don't always get the fairy tale, do we? No, look, and I think for me when I look back at the time, you know, I pushed my body to to its last little bit. So I it was like wringing the... The, the sponge out as the last bit of water that I could get out of it. And I'm, I'm glad I did it and I'm happy that I did it for, for summer. And, um, yeah, just to be able to say I'm a, a triple Olympian, I mean, it's pretty special having that many years in the sport. And if I'd played in the Olympics while I was playing for the national team of indoor volleyball, I'd, I'd probably have played six Olympics. So to think that my career went for so long, yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty grateful. Yeah, Pretty yeah. Lucky. And following those Olympics, is it a few years later you make the Volleyball Hall of Fame and do you travel to the US for that? Yeah, travel to the US for that, the International Hall of Fame. Natalie and I were um, given the team of the decade along with the Brazilian team um, who won gold in Atlanta. They also were dominating throughout that decade and we got the two medals in that decade. So we both um, won that award, which is fantastic. Uh, from the International Federation, and so we were then inducted into, or well, I was first because Natalie was still competing, and then a few years later Natalie was as well, so we're both in the Hall of Fame. Hey, you mentioned about pushing your body to the absolute limit, and that, that might be the good segue to talk about SAS Australia because you were really flying the flag for, and I'll say this delicately, uh, older Australians uh, what, what what are your thoughts about aging and also pushing your body and staying healthy? Uh, a friend of mine has a series, Australians Getting Better With Age, and I feel in some ways we can actually improve as we get older, but what are your thoughts around aging? Well, I, I think we can improve in any way at any time. It's really just up to what your beliefs are and, and what your passion is, what you love to do, and I love to be challenged, and that's exactly why I said yes to SAS. So. I mean, in the, the the previous few years, I've barely been in the gym. You know, I'd start going to the gym, I'd go two or three times and then I wouldn't go back for a few months just because of distractions and there's no real goal in mind and it's like, yeah, why am I doing this? Every time I go, I just get really sore again because I push myself too hard and, and then my knees hurt and I always had an excuse. And then one... <laughs> And then COVID came along and um, unfortunately my mum passed away in August 2020 and we had to go to Adelaide um, and it was in the middle of the lockdown and we, we knew we had to um, isolate for two weeks. So I thought I'll just throw my weights in the back of the car and, and it'll give me something to do while we're sitting in this house down at Glenelg waiting to, to see my mum. And then um, during that time I, I started working out a little bit just in the backyard. I'm like, oh, this is fun. And I got through that pain period of of getting back into it and then kept on going and then got back to a Sydney and I started going to the gym again and I was enjoying how my body was feeling. I was enjoying feeling strong again. I hadn't felt that strength and I was I was looking in the mirror and thinking, oh, I'm getting some of my shape back and some of my muscle back and you know, and that's that's um motivational I think when you you see that that your body's changing so that gave me the little bit of motivation to keep going and then Yana Pittman sends me a text message one day says hey I'm in this show um you probably know about it they're looking for another female retired Olympian are you interested and I actually wrote back to her I never like didn't press send but I wrote back no ha 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 that's a joke I'm you know I'm broken I've had six knee surgeries how am I ever going to do this then I looked at my my answer and I thought, hang on a minute, 
do I really want to say no? Shall I just talk to the producers? They probably won't want me anyway. I'm too old. And then I just, that little bit of um, those juices inside me started to flow and I started to get a little bit challenged and I'm like, oh, no. And then so I deleted it and I wrote, okay, I'll speak to the producer. And um, that was it. And the producers really wanted me and, and I decided that, you know, it was a great opportunity to show that older women and, well, as we get older into our 50s, that we can actually still be challenged and and, and actually do something and get better. And so I had... 11 weeks to prepare for it and I literally prepared for it like I was preparing for a gold medal. I wrote down absolutely everything I needed to do. I diarised it all. I changed my diet and the, the the transformation I got with my body with a bung knee with that still being, you know, an issue was unbelievable. I, I just can't believe I was able to do that. I've lost it now because I <laughs> ended up having to have another knee surgery and then I got demotivated again. But it just goes to show how much motivation you can get from having a goal in mind, you know, and having a date on that goal. I knew I only had 11 weeks. I didn't want to waste one single day. Yeah, out of the men on the show, the SAS commanders, I guess you call them, was there someone that resonated more with you than the others? And tell us why. Ant Middleton, he he's the smaller, the chunky guy, the one that is kind of the main uh, guy in the show. He was so motivational and so supportive. Like he was hard and he would, you know, he would swear every single swear word you can think of in the sun right in your face and try and kind of beat you down. But at the end of the day, he would also be so inspiring in the stories he would tell us before each task and, you know, why we would do it and what's happened to him in the past and, you know, all those sorts of things, and and that really got us fired up. Billy was the older one of the three, and I think he was the one that I resonated with in that he was a little more softer and a little more supportive, pretty tough as well, but he knew probably what I was feeling and going through, so I kind of felt a little bit more aligned with him. Foxy was just on the sidelines just with all the funny comments. One time we were standing in the parade ground and he just looked at me and he said, there's something about the way you run. You remind (laughs) me of someone. And I looked at him sideways because, you know, you're always a bit scared of looking at these guys, um, you know, that they're going to pounce on you. And he he comes back a few minutes later and he goes, CP3O. Is that that it? Or is it the the guy with the tin tin suit and just kind of running like a robot? That's who you remind me of. And I'm like, yeah, thank you very much. So... Did it, um, um, did it reaffirm for you just how much Australians love our Olympic champions? And I feel like Yana's gone full circle. John Stephenson was on the show as well. But I said at the top of the podcast that we fell in love with you again after what happened in 2000 to see you back on our screens and pushing yourself to your absolute limit. Did it just kind of reaffirm what status our Olympians are held in? Yeah, it's pretty special in Australia and and um, I think Australia really resonates with Olympians because we punch above our weight because we do so well in the Olympics, you know, depend, because of the size of our population compared to some of the other nations in this world, you know, the, the medals that we're getting and just the, the participation. We're always sending teams of at least 500 overseas who have qualified for their sports. Uh, I think, yes, definitely Australia is a little bit kinder on those sorts of shows towards Olympians rather than the actors or the, you know, the models, you know, they can kind of be put sometimes in a different light. But I think with the Olympians, you know, we all, you know, we just have that 
drive and grit and determination and, and especially in on SAS I mean Melissa Wu was another one who just wowed everybody you know her stature she's so tiny but she was so committed and so determined to do everything and you know we were doing things on our show I mean here I am 50 I was 56 not not near as tall as, as someone like Sam Burgess but he's you know he's half my age twice my size twice my weight and we're doing the same things next to each other. And, and obviously I'm not doing them anywhere near as good as he is, but still trying to compete. And that in itself is scary. And that in itself requires a little bit of courage just to do that. And that's what I wanted to show the women of this of this country and, and women of anywhere, really. I still get messages from other countries where the show goes to air and they find me on Instagram. And, yeah, I've, I've just turned into that person that was inspired, you know, that many women to be able to just, you know, keep saying yes to things and, and don't give up. Yeah. You're not over the hill. You're just definitely not over the hill. Yeah, beautiful. I, I promise I've only got two kind of final questions coming your way. <laughs> Has beach volleyball gone full circle? Is your son playing now? I think I saw a photo recently. Yes. So um, my son has has found the passion in the last couple of years. He's 15. Initially, he he kind of played a little bit on the beach on the weekends, you know, with the junior program at the Northern Beaches Volleyball Association. And I'd coach and, you know, he wouldn't listen to me and all that sort of same parent-child thing. <laughs> but then all of a sudden, in the last couple of years, he's really found the passion himself. And, and the thing is, he has great skills. And here's the thing, I didn't teach him the skills but because, and this is where environment becomes so important growing up, because he was with me when I'm commentating or coaching, he's been with me in tournaments where there's the best players in Australia or the best players in the world. Um, he's just been around volleyball and he's seen so much of it at its highest level that he just really slipped into having such great skills. So I haven't had to teach him that. Uh, now I'm having to teach him the attitude part of it. <laughs> He's a 15-year-old boy who thinks he knows everything. So I'm having to teach him, um, you know, a little bit around the mindset, which is hard for a kid to understand that, you know, how much how much um, weight what they're thinking has on, on how they perform. But it, that's exactly it. it. It really is everything. And it's not just sport. I mean, it's everything in life, you know, what your thoughts, the thoughts you keep really – um, are who you become and how you perform. So, yeah, it's an interesting journey for me now watching him go through that. Yeah, I tell you, the gene pool looks good. He's a good-looking rooster, your son. No, he's he's definitely a tall. He's almost my height now. I'm not sure he's going to be super tall. His dad's a little bit shorter than me, uh, but we'll cross our fingers. We'll put him on the stretching wrap. Hey, Kerry, you've got to tell us about meeting Luke Longley and the Chicago Bulls, the legendary team, the dream team in the 1990s. Yeah, well, the funny thing was we were actually in Orlando, Florida, and Natalie and I just started playing together. We'd done really well. Um, I think it was about 1995. It was before the Atlanta Olympics. And the Natalie's always been in love with Michael Jordan. I mean, she really looked up to Michael as an athlete. She had posters of him on her wall and things like that. So when we found out they were actually playing when we were there and we'd finished our tournament, we thought, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could get a ticket to go see them? And I, I said, we were playing cards one night with the New Zealand team and I just looked at them and said, I bet you I can get tickets. And the New Zealand team went, oh, I bet you can't. And I'm like, oh, okay, you're on. So I thought, okay, how am I going to do this? And I know that I knew that there was a guy from 
um, WA from Australia, Luke Longley, who was playing in the team at the time. And I don't know, never have never met him. And I thought, oh, okay, I'll just try and call him. And then I thought, well, how am I going to find out where they're staying? So I rang the stadium where the basketball was being played. And I said, oh, where do the players normally stay? And she said, oh, when they come into town, they stay at three different hotels. I got that information over the phone. Easily, <laughs> easy. Anyway, I rang the first hotel. They say, so, said, sorry, um, no, they're not staying here. I rang the second hotel. They said, sorry, they're not staying here. I rang the third hotel. They said, sorry, we can't give out that information. And then I went, okay, that's where they're staying. So I waited a couple of hours and then I rang back and I said, hello, my name's Kerry Potthast. I'm from Australia. Can I please be put through to Luke Longley? <laughs> and they put me straight through to his room and he was there and he picks up the phone. He goes, hello, Luke speaking. I went, and I just gulped and, I, and I'm on a public telephone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I went, oh, hi, this is Kerry from Perth and we're here playing beach volleyball for Australia. We'd love to come and see you anyway. Short story. Um, he said, yep, yeah, no worries. We'll get you some tickets. And so they gave us some tickets, left them at the door. I, I said to the New Zealand team, see you later. <laughs> and Natalie and I found ourselves right at the top of the stadium. They looked like ants down on the ground, but we had backstage passes. So we came down and we ended up meeting Luke. And then the best thing is Luke has since then always been, you know, a friend and he was one of the first people a year later that was there to uh, celebrate with us after we won our bronze medal at the Atlanta Games. Yeah. So that was so cool. Yeah, and his Australian story was just a masterpiece. So, yeah, really love Luke Longley. Just one final question for you, Kerry. Uh, You moved into kind of my domain, which is public speaking. Um, So you're a motivational speaker, but, like, I, I coach people on their public speaking and their communication skills. Now, was that something that was always natural to you or did you have to work hard at that to improve your skills? No, speaking was definitely not a natural thing for me. As I mentioned before, I didn't like being the centre of attention. Sometimes, you know, I'd find myself if everyone was looking at me in a team situation and I'd have to answer a question, I'd kind of get all embarrassed and fumble my words. And so it's definitely not something that I was used to. But then one day I was asked um, after the Atlanta Olympics, uh, we actually got given a an opportunity to do a speaking course. E- every medalist got the opportunity. So I took it up and it was a three-day course. I remember with Rogan, uh, a company in Sydney, they were the sponsor of the Olympics or one of the sponsors. And I did the course and I kind of worked, I found out how to structure my story a little bit up until that point. And then I got an opportunity to speak one day and I literally wrote my whole story, my speech out, and I read it. It was only a 10-minute slot, but I read it word for word and it was interesting enough to get a little bit of uh, feedback. But then from that moment on, I thought, well, maybe I could get a few extra dollars here as I'm going towards Sydney and make some money. And so I started speaking and I, I went from, you know, pages of notes and reading my speech to then writing short paragraphs in different colours so I could look up and look down. And then I went to little um, cards and I, I kind of had different stories. And then I gave my stories a name and so I'd remember the story and just write the name of the story, every, you know, in a, in a row on a card so I remembered where the flow of my talk. And then at the same time I started listening to other speakers and learning what they did and taking a little bit from that and now I can talk for about two hours with nothing <laughs> yeah um, and I've just learned how to tell my stories and they all come out always come out 
similar um, but different depending on the the group that I'm talking to. I'll just focus on different parts of the story depending on what their theme is, whether it's belief or resilience or teamwork or, um, you know, adversity, whatever it is. Um, and I've learned to really, you know, enjoy it. And I love actually being on stage and sharing stories now. And, and yeah, definitely over 20 years, it's it's been a learned skill, but very enjoyable and very fruitful as well. Yeah, it is the cornerstone of all great speeches and speakers is telling stories. Well done. Um, my final question, I promise. Can you describe in 25 words or less what it's like when you're standing there on the dais arm in arm with someone after winning a gold medal at the Olympics. And let's not forget, you know, the Olympics, I think if you go to the notes, they were first held 776 BC to 393 AD originally. And mostly Greek soldiers were involved, but anyone could take part. And it was the best of the best. You're part of an elite club of people that reach the pinnacle of sport. What is it like when you've won a gold medal and the Aussie flag is being raised? I can only imagine. In fact, the hairs are standing on end at the moment. What a moment to celebrate with someone after years of blood, sweat and tears. Well, just listening to your question, I started to get all goosebumpy as well and, you know, trying to feel how I felt when I was standing there with Natalie. I think proud is probably the, the the only word. You know, there are plenty of other beautiful words that we could add in there, but feeling proud, the proudest moment of my absolute life, and then feeling so connected and so together with Natalie, like we're sisters, we're not blood sisters, but we are far closer than that. We are sisters in life um, until the day we both leave this earth, we will always, always remember the journey that we spent together. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much for joining us on The Perfect Ten. I'm giving you a uh, another standing ovation, but I do have a studio audience. <laughs> Kerry Podhast, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks, Steve. Kerry Pothast, OAM, one of my heroes, and I'm still pinching myself that Kerry gave me so much time to step through her illustrious career on The Perfect Ten. The podcast brought to you by Robson Civil Projects, and right across New South Wales at the moment, there's a record spend on infrastructure. That means endless job opportunities with Robson Civil. Right now, they need the following. Plant operators and civil labourers, graduates and also undergraduates, site managers, site engineers, Project managers, project engineers, safety coordinators, and environmental coordinators. So no matter where you are now, Robson Civil Projects is calling. Check out robsoncivilprojects.com.au or send your CV to jobs at robsoncivil.com.au. That's jobs at robsoncivil.com.au. And join the Robson family who is celebrating their 60th anniversary. Thank you again to Kerry Pothas for joining us. Thank you for listening. And we'll catch you next time on The Perfect Ten.
The Perfect Ten.